Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Wednesday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. When we left off with Monday's podcast of the story of Micah and his idols, I thought we hit rock bottom. But today, we plunge even deeper. Today, moving into Judges 19, our narrative trajectory speeds downward into unapproachable depths of depravity and despair. As one might watch in horror, unable to turn our eyes away as a jetliner screams vertically toward the earth with 400 passengers on board, so do we watch as Israel plummets downward, no longer held aloft by God's wings, plunging into the muck and the mire of sin and depravity. Today, we look at the story of the Levite and his concubine. We begin with our now familiar line, in those days when there was no king in Israel, there was a Levite residing in remote parts of the mountain region of Ephraim, who had taken for himself a concubine from Bethlehem of Judah. But his concubine spurned him and left him for her father's house in Bethlehem of Judah, where she stayed for some four months. Her husband then set out with his servant and a pair of donkeys and went after her to soothe her and bring her back. He arrived at her father's house, and when the young woman's father saw him, he came out joyfully to meet him. His father-in-law, the young woman's father, urged him to stay. And so he spent three days eating and drinking and passing the night there in Bethlehem. On the fourth day, they rose early in the morning and he prepared to go. But the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, Oh, please, fortify yourself with a little food. You can go later. So they stayed. And the two men ate and drank together, and they had a grand old time. And then the young woman's father said to the husband, Why not decide to spend the night here and enjoy yourself? The man made a move to go, but when his father-in-law pressed him, he went back and he spent the night there. Now, on the surface, this seems like a rather tender story. The Levite, living in the mountains in a remote area of Ephraim, has a concubine, whom he apparently cares for, but she leaves him to return home to Bethlehem to her father's house. Now, we need to look at this story very carefully. We've just met a young Levite from Bethlehem in the story of Micah in Monday's podcast. Micah and his idols. And we learned that a young Levite was nothing more than a religious charlatan, a crook looking for someone to swindle, a schemer who betrays Micah, himself crooked as a dog's hind leg, and joins the Danites on their journey through the hill country of Ephraim to murder and plunder the people of Laish. Starting the story with the refrain, in those days when there was no king in Israel, and introducing yet another Levite living in a remote region of Ephraim like the Unabomber, sets off alarm bells. Something's not quite right with this story. 
And you have to wonder about the concubine, too. Why does she leave? Good points. We've already seen the lawless, dangerous hill country of Ephraim in our previous story on Monday. And we've also seen the corruption embodied by Micah and his family who live there. There are very dark, off-color shadows all throughout this story. Shadows like pale green clouds of venomous gas drifting through a dark forest. Recall, the Levites were allocated no land. They're to live in one of the 48 Levitical cities, and they're to minister to the people. This Levite lives in a remote region of Ephraim with his concubine, which is not a Levitical city. The concubine is a pelechish, a lesser form of wife, a second wife, if you will, like Hagar was to Abraham. A concubine has the responsibilities of a wife, but none of the rights and privileges. We hear nothing of the Levite's first wife, or even if he has one. And notice, too, that while the concubine's father is coaxing the Levite to stay, there is not a single mention of his daughter. All the Hebrew verbs are grammatically masculine. Now, admittedly, this is a profoundly patriarchal society, but it's still rather odd. And remember, in such a profoundly patriarchal society, men control everything. But when a man takes a second-class wife, the power dissymmetry is even more pronounced than in an ordinary household. The second wife has virtually no rights. She's simply property, like a goat or a donkey. This concubine, however, spurned the Levite. The word is zanah. Translations vary. Played the harlot, was unfaithful, spurned, all possible. Typically, though, zanah refers to sexual unfaithfulness, to whoredom. But here it doesn't seem to. The concubine leaves on her own for Bethlehem. She's not accused of adultery and ejected in shame from the Levite's house. In fact, we're told that after four months, the Levite goes after her to soothe her. The Hebrew is to speak to her from the heart. Now, the word could imply tenderness or perhaps blunt honesty. Bethlehem, her hometown, is the same place Micah's Levite is from. And the place name resonates between the two stories, subtly reminding us of the corruption in the previous story spilling over into this story. The concubine's father then offers gracious hospitality to the Levite. For three days he wines and dines him without a mention of his daughter or why his daughter had left the Levite. On the fourth day, her father urges the Levite to stay the night and enjoy yourself. Make merry. The phrase can mean simply enjoy yourself or, more crudely, enjoy my daughter. There is definitely something off key here. Now, I get the feeling a lot's going on beneath the surface of this story.
We continue. On the fifth morning, he rose early to depart. But the young woman's father said, Oh, please, fortify yourself. He coaxed him and he tarried until the afternoon. The two of them ate, the father and the Levite. Then, when the husband was ready to go with his concubine and servant, the young woman's father said, Oh, look, the day's wearing on toward evening. Stay the night. See, the day's coming to an end. Spend the night here. Enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow you can start on your journey. The man, however, refused to stay another night. He and his concubine set out with a pair of saddled donkeys and traveled until they came to Jebus, which is Jerusalem. Now, since they were near Jebus, with the day far gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's turn off to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. But his master said, will not turn off to a foreigner city where there are no Israelites. We'll go on to Gibeah. Come, he said to his servant, let's make for some other place and spend the night in either Gibeah or Ramah. So they continued on their way until the sun had set when they were opposite Gibeah of Benjamin. Right in the hill country, right where our previous story took place. So on the fifth morning of the concub- on the fifth morning the concubine's father again urges the Levite to stay another night, enjoy himself. But again, this could be simple hospitality, or it could be darker. In any case, the Levite insists on leaving, and he and his concubine, a servant, two donkeys, head north, about four and a half miles toward Jebus, Jerusalem, after David conquers it. The Levite's servant suggests they stay there for the night, but the Levite refuses, since it's not, at this point, an Israelite town. So they push on another six miles to Gibeah, an Israelite town within the tribe of Benjamin. So it's a solid day's walk. And since they left Bethlehem in the afternoon, they arrive at Gibeah well after dark, as our text tells us. And there, they turned off to enter Gibeah for the night. The man went in, he sat down in the town square, but no one took them inside to spend the night. In the evening, however, an old man came from his work in the field. He was in the mountain region of Ephraim, though he was living in Gibeah, where the local people were Benjamites. And when he noticed the traveler in the town square, the old man asked, where are you going and where have you come from? He said to him, well, we're traveling from Bethlehem of Judah far up into the mountain region of Ephraim where I'm from. I've been to Bethlehem of Judah, now I'm going home, but no one's offered hospitality. No one's offered to take me into his house. We have straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for myself and your maidservant and the young man who's with your servant. But there's There's nothing else we need. Oh, rest assured, the old man said. I'll provide for all your needs. But don't spend the night in the public square. So he led them to his house and mixed fodder for the donkeys. Then they washed their feet, they ate, and they drank. Now, in the ancient world, 
hospitality, or the Greek word xenia, is a sacred obligation, which consists of two basic rules. Number one, respect from host to guest. The host must provide the guest with shelter, protection, food, drink, a bath, and a gift when he leaves. It's not polite to ask the guest questions, including his identity, until after he's eaten his meal. Thus, one cannot discriminate by nationality, social status, or occupation. And number two, respect from guest to host. The guest must be courteous to the host and not be a burden. The guest should also provide a gift to the host when he leaves. There are many examples of Xenia in Greek and Roman literature, as well as in older Middle Eastern literature. In the Odyssey, for example, several people provide Xenia to Odysseus. In the story of Baucus and Philemon, in Ovid's fable, Baucus and Philemon are an old married couple who welcome Zeus and Hermes, gods who are traveling in disguise. And in Scripture, Hebrews 13, verse 1, urges Christians to let mutual love continue, do not neglect hospitality, for through it some have unknowingly entertained angels. Well, that alludes to Abraham sharing a meal and entertaining two angels and God in Genesis 18, the story that sets up the Sodom and Gomorrah episode. But that's not the case for the Levite and his concubine. Arriving at night in the town square of Gibeah, the Levite and his concubine expect an offer of hospitality from the townsmen, but they're ignored. Finally, that old man from the mountain region of Ephraim, who now lives in the Benjamite town of Gibeah, approaches the Levite and his concubine, warns them not to spend the night in the town square, and offers to take them in. He feeds their donkeys, he washes their feet, they eat, they drink. The old man knows. In these days, when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, it was not safe to travel the roads or stay in the town square, especially at night. And that was doubly true if you were in Benjamite territory. So while they were enjoying themselves, the men of the city, a bunch of scoundrels, surrounded the house and beat on the door. They said to the old man who was the owner of the house, bring out the man who's come into your house so we can have sex with him. The man who was the owner of the house said, no, my brothers, do not be so wicked. This man has come into my house. Do not commit this terrible crime. Instead, let me bring out my virgin daughter and this man's concubine. Humiliate them. Do whatever you want with them. But against him, do not commit such a terrible crime. I can't believe the old man said that. This scene graphically recalls the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19, where God and two angels visit Abraham, and after sharing a meal together, God tells Abraham what he's going to do, since the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grave. In the story, Abraham's nephew Lot 
begs the men of Sodom to spare his two guests, offering his two virgin daughters in their place. Here, the rabble of the town, the Benjamite town of Gibeah, pound on the door and demand that the old man from Ephraim bring out the man who has come into your house so we can have sex with him. The Benjamites want to rape the Levite. Tikva Freemarkensky, professor of Hebrew at the University of Chicago Divinity School, comments in a wonderful book she wrote titled Reading the Women of the Bible, A New Interpretation of Their Stories, published in 2002. She writes of this. They cry, let us know him. It must have come as a shock to the Levite, who had bypassed Jebus in order to stay, uh, come home to Israelite Gibeah. Instead, he now realizes he's come to Sodom. Let us know him, literally, may indeed mean carnal knowledge, but the proposed rape of the traveler is like the rape of newcomers in jail. The purpose of such rape is neither enjoyment nor love. It's the assertion of dominance and the dishonoring of the man forced to submit. Thus says Professor Freemeyer Kensky. And this is precisely the point. Although the Israelites are God's covenant people, gifted with the law in the tabernacle, they've become as bad, if not worse, than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, people have said many times, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, is the national epic of Israel. Well, it's not the national epic I write. It's a story of total and complete failure on every front. Now, the old man tries to dissuade the men of Gibeah from their despicable actions, but all to no avail. The men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and thrust her outside to them. They raped her and abused her all night until morning and let her go as the sun was coming up. At the approach of morning, the woman came and collapsed at the entrance of the house in which her husband was and lay there till morning. When her husband rose in the morning and opened the door of the house to start out again on his journey, there was the woman, his concubine, clasped at the entrance of the house with her hands grasping the threshold. Get up, it's time to go, he said. There was no answer. She was dead. So the man placed her on a donkey and started out for home. On reaching home, he got a knife and took hold of the body of his concubine. He cut her up limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel. He FedExed pieces of her to the other tribes. He instructed the men whom he sent, thus you shall say to all the men of Israel, has such a thing ever happened from the day the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt to this day? Take note of it. Form a plan. Give orders. Now, we need to pause and consider this truly terrible story. On one hand, we might see the Levite 
and all the other characters in the story as behaving purely within the context of a brutal Near Eastern patriarchal society. The concubine is simply property, like a goat or a donkey, to both the Levite and her father. Such women have no rights whatsoever. The men, the Levite, the concubine's father, the old man at Gibeah, sacrifice her to maintain or save their own honor and their own skin. On the other hand, the Levite seems to have some degree of tenderness toward his concubine, traveling to Bethlehem to speak to her from the heart, while her father seems to show respect, if not affection, toward the Levite. Yet, when the Levite is threatened by the Benjamite gang, he willingly and quickly tosses his concubine out the door, saving himself. And when his concubine is gang-raped and dies on the threshold of the old man's house, the Levite takes it as an offense toward himself, with no mention of his concubine's suffering, saying, Has such a thing ever happened from the day the Israelites came from the land of Egypt to this day? Take note of it, form a plan, give orders. Our story tells a terrible tale of depravity and sin with ambiguous characters whose motives remain hidden and whose characters blur. We want to know why the Levite is living in the remote mountains, like the Unabomber. Why his concubine leaves. Why her father seems disinterested in her. And why the old Ephraimite is living in Gibeah. But we're not told. The characters are never developed. Instead, our story points beyond the characters portrayed in it, speaking of the depths to which the Israelite people have sunk. Notice that not a single character in the story has a name, suggesting a broader message than the actions of a specific few. Although the characters are never fully developed, they become emblematic of Israelite society as a whole, a society careening toward unspeakable depravity, tottering desperately on the brink. The characters in this story are a microcosm of Israelite society itself. When we turn the page, the last page, of the book of Judges, we turn to the book of Ruth. Now, I've taught Ruth during our podcast when we were looking at women of the Bible. Ruth is the greatest love story in the Bible. And it takes place back at this very time. In fact, I said, teaching Ruth, when you turn the page from Judges to Ruth, It's like turning back and looking behind us into the muck and the mire, the blood and the gore, the filthy road behind us. And suddenly there's a sparkle, a flicker of light. And we look and we bend down and we pick up in the muck and the mire a diamond, which is the book of Ruth. There's still some good but it is really hard to find at this point in our story. 
because we're dealing with a time back in the day when Israel had no king and everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. And that will lead us into the story of the kings. The story of King Saul, the story of King David, the story of King Solomon, and then civil war destroys it all. But that's where we're headed. I'd like to explore the creation of the kingship in Israel, beginning with Friday's podcast. Thank you, guys. See you then. Keep me in your prayers as I will you and mine. Love all of you. Bye-bye now. <laughs>